The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Thursday edition of the PFT PM Podcast, special bonus edition this week. I try to do three a week. If I do four or five, it's largely driven by the fact that I've got an interview that I want to drop here for you. Now, sometimes I'll just post the interview and the hell with the rest of it. But today, you know, I'm feeling like maybe I'll talk a little bit. What the hell else do I have to do? It's not like I run a major website that requires me to constantly post content. And if I don't, people get upset because they don't have a constant stream of fresh information. And I say that jokingly, but I'm thinking I better move this along so I can get back to posting content. Anyway, a couple of things I want to address before we play for you an interview with Stephen Jones, Cowboys COO, and no team moves the needle like the Dallas Cowboys. Some interesting stuff from him coming up. Before we get to that, the letter that was obtained by ESPN, obtained by ESPN. Look, it came from one of two places. It was given to ESPN by someone from Tyree Kills Camp, or it was given to ESPN by someone from the NFL. The NFL would have no reason to publicize this letter, and if it was going to, it has its own media conglomerate under the NFL shield that it could have given the letter to and benefited from the page views that go along with it. I think it's more likely that the lawyers and or Tyreek Hill's agent, Drew Rosenhaus, leaked this letter because they think this letter is helpful for him. They took great pains to craft a four-page single-space letter that is aimed at helping him, so they must assume that it helps him, even though I don't know that it really helps him in the grand scheme of things. A couple of things that stood out to me first. I don't know anything about N. Trey Petlin or Ryan S. I don't know how to pronounce Ryan's last name. G-I-N-I-E. Giny? Genie? Giny? Guinea? I don't know. It's two people. Which tells me that, and look, they may be very experienced trial lawyers, very experienced in communicating with prosecutors and getting their clients out of trouble. They may be, they may not be. Typically, the bigger the firm, the more formidable the foe because there's more resources that can be put onto a given case. More eyes see it. More brains work on it. It costs more money. But Tyreek Hill has the money and the incentive to get this handled properly. And one thing I know from practicing law, I never assume that just because someone has a law degree, they know what they're doing. I'm not saying that N. Trey Petlon doesn't know what he's doing. But I'm always skeptical until proven otherwise. And this is not the letter I would have written if Tyreek Hill had hired me to send a letter to Lisa Friel, the NFL Special Counsel of Investigations. Now, that doesn't mean that a letter I would have written would have been worth a shit, but this isn't the letter I would have written. And I can assume that this letter just wasn't spontaneously generated by Trey Petlon on behalf of Tyree Kill as a preemptive measure with the NFL. I can assume that Lisa Friel has specifically requested some sort of explanation, communication, exoneration of Tyreek Hill arising from the very troubling audio that emerged last Thursday night, one hour before the draft. This letter feels like an effort to explain in response to a specific request from Lisa Friel to do so. Now, here's the thing. Most lawyers, not all, but most would document that in the opening line of the letter because what you want to have and I'm probably telling you more than you want to know about the way the 
legal process works. But what you want to have ultimately is a file. A file that can be chronologically arranged and a file that amounts to a chain of communications where it's clear to anyone who looks at this from the outside what prompted each communication. And if, for example, Lisa Friel made a request specifically for information from Tyreek Hill explaining the contents of the disturbing audio that emerged last week. The first line of this letter should be, Dear Ms. Friel, this letter responds to your inquiry of April 26, 2019, during which you asked for XYZ. Make sure everybody's on the same page going in, and anybody who reads it later knows. This letter says, I represent Tyreek regarding the investigation in Johnson County, Kansas. I am writing you to confirm that Tyreek intends to cooperate with the NFL investigation to the extent he can under the law and to correct the record regarding misinformation in the press. Now, maybe this was sent spontaneously. Maybe it was requested. One thing I gather from that paragraph is Trey Petlon is both representing Tyreek Hill in the criminal case and in whatever case may arise within the confines of the National Football League, I think that's a mistake. Because it's two different worlds. It's two different environments. It's two different standards. I would want someone else to represent me at 345 Park Avenue. Trey Petlon, licensed in Kansas and Missouri, likely knows the lay of the land in Johnson County, Kansas, when it comes to talking to prosecutors, dealing with police officers, judges. There's a very strong local element to the practice of law. And it's always important when you have a legal predicament, wherever it may be, to find someone locally who has spent years operating within that environment, within that structure, and understanding who is who and how it fits together and they have relationships and connections and tentacles and you get somebody who's connected and you're more likely to get the best possible outcome that the facts of the case will allow you to get. I wouldn't use Trey Petlon to communicate with the National Football League. I just wouldn't. Now, maybe this letter was vetted by the NFL Players Association. Maybe there's somebody lurking in the shadows. But what Trey Petlon has done on behalf of Tyreek Hill was put together... A statement, a list of contentions that at some point Tyreek Hill is going to have to answer questions about. And he better be damn sure that Tyreek Hill's intended version of the events that would be explained when he's asked a bunch of questions by Lisa Friel or someone else, up to and including Roger Goodell, that it's all going to mesh. That there won't be any landmines that he may trip over or step on, as the case may be. I guess either way, the mind goes off. The lawyer spends time talking about the broken arm that was suffered by Hill's three-year-old son. And it's clear in context and in the things said that the arm was broken. One thing that Petlon quibbles with is the idea that it was an accident. And also, later in the letter, Petlon seems to suggest that the prosecutor has accepted that it was an accident. Well, that's not what the prosecutor said last week. The prosecutor said he believes a crime was committed. He just lacks the evidence to convincingly prove who did it. So anytime I see a disconnect like that in a communication like this, I wonder, one... Does the lawyer really understand what's going on? Two, is the lawyer trying to pull a fast one here with reality? Three, is the lawyer just not very bright? Because I don't know how anyone who's been paying any attention to this case could say what Petlon says in the next to last paragraph. As you know, District Attorney Steve Howe's office carefully reviewed all the evidence, including detailed reports, videotaped interviews, medical reports, and other significant evidence, before he declined to prosecute either party in this case. Well, it wasn't because he believes it was an accident. And there is reference in the letter 
that it was an accident and that it's been determined to be an accident. As has been reported, the investigation with was closed with nothing about the injury to suggest it was anything but an accident. That's just wrong. That's just flat out wrong. Because the prosecutor got up in front of a press conference and said, I believe a crime was committed. I just can't prove who did it. That is diametrically opposed with the contention that the investigation was closed with nothing about the injury to suggest it was anything but an accident. So if I'm Lisa Friel and I get this letter, one of my first questions is, what the hell is this guy talking about? And it makes me question the validity and accuracy of everything else he says. That's how credibility works. If you don't have credibility, if you don't have believability, if you don't have accuracy in a major comment that you make that can be easily refuted by other obvious and clear statements that have been made, then who's going to believe the other stuff that you say where there may not be something clear and obvious to refute it? But you just assume that that same flaw, however it got there, inadvertently, intentionally, however and whyever it's there, you assume that that flaw potentially infects the rest of the letter. Petlon spends a lot of time denying that Tyree Kill punches his son when the boy is crying because that's part of what Espinal alleges in the audio. It turns out the audio was recorded in an airport in Dubai. That's Hill's allegation. He's acknowledges, Petlon does, that the audio is Tyreek Hill. So that frontline defense, if there was ever going to be one, that it's fake and it's fraudulent and it wasn't me, that's gone. It was Tyreek Hill in, of all places, an airport in Dubai. And th- there's a largely unspoken, but at times spoken and articulated idea that they're out in the open, they're talking about this, and Tyreek Hill wasn't as careful with his words as he would have been if they had been in private. You know, you're in an airport. You know, this isn't the place for this, Crystal. Why are we doing this here, Crystal? And there's this sense that, number one, Crystal's up to no good because she secretly recorded the audio, and Crystal's up to no good because she's pushing this version of the events that has a bunch of accusations presumed within it. So Tyree Kill is constantly on the defensive while he's in an airport in Dubai. The analogy would be the old line of questioning, and I know that this doesn't really, I don't know that this, I I understand the sensitivity of the situation, but one of the examples they give you in law school about how you get someone on the defensive with an unfair question is when did you stop beating your wife? Well, what do you mean? What do you t- and, and so it's presumed within the question that you have already been a domestic abuser. The question is, when did you cease being a domestic abuser? And you're you're immediately backpedaling, and you can't escape this vortex of presumptions that you're guilty of something. You never get a chance to really explain it. There's nothing you can say unless you shout loudly enough. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I never beat anybody. And and the the message here that comes through this letter is that Tyree Kill wasn't in a position to basically shout from the rooftops while at the Dubai airport, Crystal, what the hell are you talking about? I never punched the kid in the chest. I never punched him. I never broke his arm. We've been down. We've been through. What what are we doing? What are we talking about this in Dubai for? We've already talked about this. I didn't break his arm. Whatever it was, it was an accident. And the the problem is he tries to wade into a middle ground by engaging. Or go back and listen to the audio. If she engages him in a spot that isn't the time or the place, the best thing he can say is, this isn't the time or the place for this. Let's talk about this when we get home. Why do you want to talk about this now? This isn't the time or the place for this. Now, even then, you could hear audio with those kinds of statements and think that he's kind of implicitly agreeing with whatever she's accusing him of. But it doesn't come through that he's apoplectic about the idea that in Dubai, in an airport, all of a sudden, Crystal Espinal is making her power play to implicate 
the father of her three-year-old child in multiple instances and allegations of child abuse. And here's the other problem. Regardless of whatever the lawyer does to try to explain this away, this is the conversation where a very brief argument over whether or not the three-year-old child respects or is terrified of Tyreek Hill results in Hill abandoning the argument and simply saying, and you need to be terrified of me too, bitch. That kind of changes everything. And, you know, the defense lawyer's job is to find a way, no matter what the facts, no matter what the circumstances, to defend the client. And when it comes to that comment, and Trey Petlon says, that comment's inexcusable, of course, and Tyreek wouldn't ask me to defend that here. Now, of course, in a couple paragraphs after that, the lawyer says, as an aside, it seems clear from the audio that Ms. Espinall is not, in fact, terrified of Tyreek Hill. So it's just lawyer being lawyer and lawyer doing what lawyer has to do. And that's the thing we always have to remember with this. The lawyer is essentially speaking as the client. The lawyer is defending the client. And the lawyer is trying to help the client, number one, stay out of jail. And number two, preserve his career. I'm just not really convinced by this. And the one thing that is going to resonate with the crowd out there that wants Tyreek Hill back on the Chiefs, because obviously it's rooting interest that drives what's right or what's wrong. And I don't know how wise this was by Tyreek Hill's lawyer. Instead of saying, I didn't do it, or in addition to that, I mean, he could just leave it at that. I didn't do it. Takes it a step farther and blames it on Espinal. Although Ms. Espinal claims in the secret audio to have never used a belt to discipline their child, Tyreek argued that she did, and she has admitted it to him. In fact, in text messages between her and Tyreek, she admits that she caused marks to their son's buttocks when she spanked him. Her texts to Tyreek after their return from Dubai include the following exchange related to spanking. Tyreek, Crystal, you know I didn't cause any bruising or harm to our son, but for some reason, I still may be charged. Crystal, I know you didn't. I did. I hurt our son. I'm the one that did it. I was hurt and mad at you, so I blamed you for everything. So, I don't know whether that's the right play here to say to the NFL, Crystal Espinal did it. Because she can still be charged. And she can still insist she didn't do it and he did it. And to the extent the NFL wants to speak to her, remember, the NFL has no jurisdiction over private citizens. And that's one of the big flaws in the NFL's personal conduct policy as it relates to investigations. If you have a motivated victim, like the person who accused Ezekiel Elliott of wrongdoing, who will sit for six interviews, you can get what you need to suspend Ezekiel Elliott. Whereas with Reuben Foster, when you have somebody who initially accuses him of wrongdoing and then recants and refuses to cooperate, how do you ever prove a case? Crystal Espinall holds the key to Tyreek Hill's future earning capacity in the NFL. And if she decides to go all in against him and tells a compelling story and he doesn't, if his story has holes in it, logical flaws, inconsistencies with the contents of the letter sent by N. Trey Patlon to Lisa Friel, it's going to be a problem for Tyreek Hill. And here's how it'll go down. Tyreek Hill, when he's interviewed, they're not going to put the letter out there and ask him if every sentence in there is consistent and accurate with his own memory they're going to ask him to tell his story and he better hope his story is consistent with what his lawyer said because if it's not he's got a problem and if he seems nervous if he gets flustered gets angry gets frustrated and crystal espinal makes a great presentation tells a great story seems believable that's when Tyreek Hill is going to have a major problem. And I think when you're talking about a guy like this who may have a short fuse, you're going to get him in an adversarial setting and you're going to try to get him to crack. You want to replicate that. You want to see if it's there. You want to see how far beneath the surface that that fire rages. You want to be Tom Cruise to his Jack Nicholson. And you're not doing it for sport. You're trying to get to the truth. The truth is a hard thing to get to. Because people will lie. They will do it to protect themselves. They will do it under this warped sense of protecting their family. 
I need to make it right with my child and the mother of my children. And the only way to make it right is to continue to play in the NFL and make enough money to take care of them for decades to come. I will say what I have to say to protect them. Never mind the fact I'm also protecting me. I will say what I have to say to protect them. That desire to protect your family fuels, I'd say, 95% of the lying that happens in the civil and criminal justice system. And people think they're smart enough to get away with it. I've seen it time and again. So I spent a lot of time talking about this three-page letter. But the one thing we got to remember, Tyreek Hill admitted to choking and punching Crystal Espinal when she was pregnant with this child back in December of 2014. He admitted to that. And we spent three NFL seasons suspending disbelief that the guy who did that is somehow different from the guy that we are seeing doing great things on a football field and that has not done anything bad since he's come to the NFL. It's two different people. Two different lifetimes. When you listen to that audio and you hear him just turn on a dime, with that menacing voice. You need to be terrified of me too, bitch. That makes me think that the guy who did what was done back in December of 2014 and the guy that we hear on that audio, same guy. That guy's unfit to play in the NFL. All the rest of it's detail. You can quibble about this and that and no, I don't punch him. I just say, come on, buddy, man up when he's crying. No, I don't discipline him. No, I, I didn't break his arm. No, that was an accident. That's all details. What he said when he said, you need to be terrified of me too, bitch, that, to me, brought the two men, the two identities together. That's why nothing in this letter changes my mind. Nothing's going to change my mind that Tyree Kill is unfit to play in the NFL, that he's unfit to take advantage of the privilege to play in the NFL. Because there are 1,696 jobs in the NFL, and if he gets chance number three, it's taking away someone else's chance number one, and that person who ultimately loses chance number one never did anything wrong. So we'll see how this plays out. I'm disappointed the NFL hasn't put him on the commissioner exempt list. I think the NFL was trying to avoid any additional news cycles about this trying to avoid more people knowing about it. And I don't know how widely this letter is going to be picked up. See, I said today on PFT Live, the reason the NFL hasn't put him on the commissioner exempt list and reportedly won't do it this week, if they do it, it's an AP story that shows up in every newspaper. It's on every website. And people who may have otherwise known nothing about it, because remember, NFL Network's draft coverage, not a word about the Tyreek Hill audio. ESPN mentioned it before the draft started, never mentioned it during the draft. Now, they may have said something when Miko Hardman was drafted, but not much. I don't think, I, I don't know if NFL Network said anything on Friday night, but I know Thursday night, nothing. So th- there is a PR incentive here to say as little as possible. But at some point, they have to say something. At some point, they have to do something. And when you look at what they did to Ezekiel Elliott, look, this, this is not an easy situation for the NFL. You look at what they did to Ezekiel Elliott with that six game suspension. Eight games for Kareem Hunt for shoving and kicking at a woman. And and it wasn't a... Look, I don't want to minimize what he did, but he got eight games for something that... That you look at it and it's like, that's not the Ray Rice punch. And this guy got eight games. It was bad. He shouldn't have done it. It's wrong. But it wasn't a devastating blow. The Tyree Kill audit... Just that statement. Just that menacing... And it speaks to some real problems and some real issues. And as the NFL applies a much lower standard of proof to figuring out what went wrong here, that's what you have to keep in mind. Between the menacing nature of what he said and his own admitted history, he ain't going to get the benefit of the doubt from 345 Park Avenue. All right, as promised, Stephen Jones, the Cowboys COO, they're very happy with the outcome of their draft, even though they didn't have a first-round pick. Well, they did. That first-round pick became Amari Cooper. But I had a chance earlier today to catch up with the Cowboys COO as the Cowboys try to build on their playoff appearance from 2018. Joining us now, the COO of one of the most popular sports franchises, not just in the country, but in the entire world. He is Stephen Jones from the Dallas Cowboys. Stephen, welcome back to the program. How are you? 
Hey, Mike, great being on. So I know all the work that goes into getting ready for the draft, and then that three days is a marathon and a sprint combined, also a game of chess, checkers, and chicken all rolled into one. What's the first thing you do when the draft is over and you finally get a chance to take a breath? Well, uh, usually uh, have a little drink there with the scouts, and what we usually do is like to put on the tape of the draft picks and uh, our point of attack tape and watch, uh, watch our players. It's enjoyable. Uh, you know, of course, that's after we take care of free agency. The college free agent, we think, is our eighth round. And a lot of work goes into that, but we have to finish that up first. How much time do you spend on the back end of the draft getting that free agency class lined up? Well, it's always been a big, big deal for us. We look at it as having, you know, you name the number, five, six, seven uh, picks right after the draft's over if we get to uh, pick the guys we want, and usually they come off our draft board. So we put a lot of work into that. Well, and that's how you found Tony Romo way back when. So those are very valuable picks. Some of those guys go to, on to be starters, Hall of Famers, et cetera. Uh, one of the things that Jerry Jones said recently about this year's Cowboys that caught a lot of people's attention, the idea that there's no reason the team won't be better this year. Do you agree with that assessment? There's no reason for the team to not be better? I agree with that. I think uh, we've done a lot to improve this football team, and uh, I've put a lot of work into it. We've had another draft class that we've been ad- uh, able to add to this team, and certainly losing Cole Beasley was a tough one, but we feel like between uh, uh, what we did in free agency and what we did in the draft that we have a chance to be as dynamic, if not more dynamic, uh, uh, at that position. So uh, we just feel really good about our football team. We get Travis Frederick back, and you know, as I mentioned, we had to uh, really feel good about our draft. It's always hard to have a, a wild draft when you don't have a number one pick, but we really feel like uh, we were efficient in how we drafted players. And as I mentioned, we had a good, uh, a good college free agency class. And, you know, as far as we're concerned right now, we're ready to go to uh, training camp and go to work. We're always uh, looking for ways to improve our roster, and we'll continue to do that. But we think we've got some really good depth, and if you know, the right situation came along to improve a position, and we would certainly uh, feel like uh, we've got some depth in some other areas that would allow us to do that. Do you get concerned that the expectation that the team will be better this year than last year is going to put extra pressure, maybe undue pressure on your coaching staff, or, or is that part of the reason to say it? You want them to feel that pressure and that urgency to take these players and turn them into something better than they were last year. Well, I don't even think we have to say it. I think uh, our coaching staff knows it. Uh, I think our organization as a whole knows it. I know our players feel that way, you know, that we need to take this next step. Uh, We feel like we've got a good young football team, a good nucleus, but uh, also some frustration that we weren't able to uh, take that next step last year, but sure feel like, uh, you know, another year of experience with some of our younger guys, in particular Dak and, uh, you know, improving uh, hopefully our football team as a whole, uh, that we can take that next step. And uh, I don't think uh, Jerry saying it uh, is any revelation to anybody. I think everybody puts that on themselves. When Jerry made it to the Hall of Fame, I know his party the night before included some of his all-time best sayings. Shereen Williams was recently on PFT Live with me, and we look back (laughs) at some of his best sayings. What's your favorite? What's your go-to all-time favorite Jerry saying? <laughs> oh man, that's a tough one. I did watch you and uh you and Shereen have at it with some of uh uh with some of his sayings, but uh you know, probably since we're talking about it right now, the disappointment not t- taking the next step, I always like that uh lower than a cripple cricket's ass. <laughs> <laughs> I don't th- I I can't remember whether or not that one made the draft. That's how many good ones there are. I like the one where he said we're down at the bottom and we're looking up and all we see is ass and I want to see something other than ass. So kind of like that one. I saw that. Um, I saw that was your favorite. So. <laughs> he, he also mentioned the offense is going to be different this year, and we know there's a different offensive coordinator. But from the standpoint of an average fan that would be watching a game this year, give me an idea, if you can, on, on how the, the offense will look different than what it's been the past few years. I think the biggest thing is just marrying our run game to our pass game. Uh, you know, you always want to do that. I think it's easier said than done when you're evolving with a player like Zeke. Uh, when you're involved, evolving with a player like Dak, uh, you know, it happened pretty quickly. 
Uh, we had some success right away with those two guys, you know, evolving organically a little bit. But, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing is, uh, you know, is to really marry everything up, uh, you know, so that we're a little, you know, so that we're a little harder to diagnose when we snap the ball. And uh, I know Jason and Kellen and, you know, our offensive staff are putting a lot of work into that. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to accomplish that. We obviously got a, uh, a great running back there with Zeke. Uh, Dak certainly just continues to get better. And then, of course, uh, you know, we continue to think uh, our DNA is our offensive line. And we added to that in the gra- uh, draft with McGovern. And, uh, uh, you know, just uh, think that we can really take the next step offensively, which, uh, you know, if you look at the final four teams, I think all four of them were top five in offense or, or somewhere there in abouts. And uh, we just feel like if uh, offensively we can ramp it up another notch and improve on our on our defense there. We got D-Law back in the mix in terms of uh, pressure in the passer and added Quinn that, uh, you know, our, we can really uh, have a strong football team and, uh, certainly uh, having that offense click and, you know, do some things that uh, uh, we think will make us better better as a unit, uh, you know, can uh, really make a difference. One of the realities of having a good team with a lot of good young players is at some point they need to get their second contracts. You got Demarcus Lawrence taken care of, and I know Amari Cooper and Dak Prescott are on deck. What's the timetable for getting Ezekiel Elliott signed to a new deal? Well, I think those are all uh, a work in progress. Uh, certainly, we've got a couple of years there with Zeke to get that done. Uh, uh, we certainly want to get him done. Uh, you know, he's the uh, straw, if you will, that stirs our drink, and uh, he's the key part of what we're about. And, you know, those things take time to get done. Uh, they don't happen overnight, but uh, certainly he's a, a priority in terms of ultimately getting him signed. But, you know, there hadn't really been a timetable put on this. You know, it's getting difficult to determine with some of the guys who have been suspended under the substance abuse policy, whether it's Randy Gregory, Martavis Bryant, Josh Gordon. I never quite know what their status is or what to expect. Do you have a feel for whether or not you're going to have Randy Gregory back for the 2019 season? We do not, and uh, I think those things are uh, tough things to get your hands around. Obviously, a lot of it depends on the player and how he's progressing uh, within uh, the program, and uh, certainly. Uh, you know, our understanding is Randy's doing a, a really good job of getting things back on track. As we all know with addiction, uh, you know, there's no clear path in terms of, uh, you know, you wake up and all of a sudden you, you know, you've moved on from it. So, uh, you know, that's part of the part of the journey that uh, someone like Randy takes. But we do understand he's doing well, but we don't know uh, one way or the other uh, if and when we're going to get him back. You know, the world has changed, the laws have changed, the, the the mood has changed as it relates to attitudes regarding marijuana. When is the NFL, you think, going to change and and just and just take off the table the prohibition on players using marijuana in their spare time? You know, that's hard for me to uh, speculate on uh, at the end of the day. It's certainly, um, I, I know this is going to come up in the labor negotiations as we uh, try to extend our labor deal. And it's uh, certainly something that uh, ownership will, has talked about, will talk about, and uh, you know, we it, it's a complicated uh, it's a complicated matter at the end of the day. But it is something that uh, I know you know that we have talked about as ownership, and I know, you know there'll be extensive talks with the union in terms of uh, how we address it going forward. League meeting coming up in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to ask you a competition committee question here because we now have replay review available for all pass interference calls, offensive and defensive. Do you anticipate any possible tweaks to that, and specifically the pick play? Is it possible that that offensive pick play could be removed from the reviewable interference plays when the owners get back together later this month? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I think we're going to go with the way we left it in terms of uh, what's reviewable, what's not, uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the replay itself. Uh, I know there's uh, an overtime rule in the playoffs that we'll take a look at that Kansas City's uh, proposing, but I don't see at the moment any re- any uh, tweaks uh, to the replay system. I think we're going to see how uh, the changes that we made uh, – you know, how we execute those, uh, see how they affect the ball game, and then see how they affect our game, and then uh, see uh, in the offseason if there's 
things that we should either do less or more of. Hey, last one for you, and I know i got to let you run, but you mentioned overtime changes for the playoffs. Clark Hunt told us at the league meetings that his sense is if the rule changes, it would be only for the playoffs where you would get a guaranteed possession even if the team that gets the ball first scores a touchdown. Which way do you think the wind's blowing on that as we get closer to these meetings? You know, we hadn't had our uh, call yet, which we will, so it's tough for me to know where the committee's leaning. I certainly uh, tend to lean toward the new rule. Uh, I think it's... Uh, you know, I certainly watched every play of that Kansas City-New England game, and you kind of would have liked to have seen uh, uh, what would have happened if Kansas City got a, uh, another shot at it and then uh, how the thing would have ended up. It was football, uh, in my mind, uh, the game at its best, and uh, I certainly don't have a problem with uh, guaranteeing each team a, uh, a shot at it. So uh, I don't know where our uh, the fellow competition uh, committee members are going to end up on this, but it's uh, certainly something that had some traction uh, there in the room and certainly saw some people who were very interested in it. But uh, we'll get on a call there, take a long, hard look at it, and then I'm sure membership's going to get to see it. Well, Stephen, appreciate your time. I know you're busy. We wish you all the best as the offseason continues. We look forward to talking to you again down the road. Thanks a lot, Mike. Always good being on with you. All right, thanks to Stephen Jones for some of his time. One more point that I want to make before we get to the questions today. I saw the item that was written by one of the other folks at PFT, I think it was MDS, that the scouting combine may leave Indianapolis, and folks in Indianapolis are trying their damnedest to keep it there. And they should. I don't have a problem with that. It's a good event for Indianapolis. brings a lot of people to town. But I'll say this. Because I see a lot of people in the media who are making the case to save the scouting combine in Indianapolis, do what you have to do to keep the combine, and people in the media are going to complain if the thing is in L.A., how hard it's going to be for us to do our jobs. There, and it will be. It's going to be a pain in the ass. The bigger this event gets, the more of a pain in the ass it is. So I don't go to the draft anymore. Just stay home. It's got to be a pain in the ass to work that draft moving to a different city every year. You never get into a routine. You got to learn... You got to learn, uh, you know, the lay of the land. Um, and uh, it, it's it's just something. And, and look, I know, I know. We're, we're, we're operating in the toy department. And uh, we shouldn't complain. And I'm not complaining. I'm just pointing out the reality. I'll choose to work at home as the draft goes from city to city. And I'll choose to work at home if the scouting combine leaves Indianapolis. I can still do this job from home. Now, I like going and getting access to coaches and GMs, but you know what? That may be difficult to do. That may go out the window. I'd like to think they'll still make prospects, coaches, and GMs available at press conferences, but I don't know how that changes if everybody's in L.A. I don't know how that changes if it starts moving from city to city and town to town. They do it every year with the Super Bowl and it works out, so it's hard to say that it's impossible, but it's such a good setup in Indianapolis. I really would regret that it moved, but I think it will move. I was talking to somebody who has plenty of power and influence over the NFL in Indianapolis this year, and... I got the distinct impression it's just a matter of time before the scouting combine gets treated like the draft. It's too big of an event now to not be moved around. Because here's the thing. You look at that crowd in Nashville that was at the draft, whether it's 600,000, whatever the number is, it was an impressive crowd over that three-day window. In Indianapolis, there's hardly anybody. Smattering of people. So... In other cities, it'll be a bigger deal, which, of course, will make it harder to cover it and harder for the coaches and the GMs to go there and do their thing. And, you know, part of it, too, is the coaches and the GMs and the scouts are not going to want to lose their unofficial spring break, even though they don't go anywhere warm. But they kind of take over Indianapolis. They can do their thing. It's not as as covered as it would be if it was in a place where there's a bunch of people walking around with phones. The locals pretty much leave them alone because it's been there for so long. Indianapolis is kind of unaffected by the whole thing. Indianapolis doesn't react to it the way that Philly reacted to the draft, the way that Nashville reacted to the draft, the way that other cities will react to the draft. People will react to the presence of the combine. 
And it is going to create logistical headaches for the NFL, but the NFL's perspective will be, who cares? Who cares? Now, they should care because they should make it as easy and efficient as possible for the people who are trying to scout. They should make that part of it easy. And the, the, the primary value of the whole thing is to get all the prospects together for their medical eva- evaluations. And I saw that there was talk that they could still do that in Indianapolis and then take the players to Los Angeles or wherever they would do the workouts and the interviews and the rest of it. At some point, though, it really does cross over from job interview into reality TV. And none of these guys get paid for it. Now, most of them are still going to do it because they want the job that goes along with it. So if I have to go to Indianapolis and then I have to fly to L.A. or wherever else, I'll do it. But man, the more the NFL makes it into a big event and the more money the NFL makes off of it, the more glaring it becomes that the the NFL isn't taking care of the individuals other than potentially drafting them. But I'm talking about giving them a fee for providing content for their reality show, whether it's the combine, whether it's the draft, whether it's the pro day workouts, the NFL is getting a lot of free content where the stars of the show get nothing. Just an extension of college football. They were exploited for at least three years in college. They're going to be exploited again. And then they get drafted and then they get paid. But you know what? The best ones are still going to get drafted and still get paid. I I really look forward to the day that, the top prospects beyond just saying I'm not going to the draft like Dwayne Haskins did this year I'm not going to any of it draft me or don't draft me I'm not playing this game I'm not submitting to an interview you're going to draft me it'd be different if I got to pick where I'm going to go draft me or don't draft me and if you don't draft me one of your competitors will draft me look look what happened with Marquise Brown he got taken in round one even though he was able to do nothing before the draft. Not a thing before the draft. And they still took him in round one based on his college film. I just wish some of these guys, and I know it's not easy to do it. It's easy for me to say it. It's harder for them to do it. I wish one of these guys would say, screw it, I'm not doing any of it. Not coming to the combine, not doing a pro day, not doing private workouts, not sitting for interviews. I, I'm just, you know what? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish school. I'm a student athlete. I'm going to be a student this semester. If you want to draft me, go ahead and draft me. I know that's unrealistic, but oh well. Let's answer some of your questions. PFTPM Posse, how are we as regular ordinary people expected to know all the laws and whether or not we potentially are in violation of them when people like lawyers, cops, judges, etc. spend their entire lives learning and mastering the legal system? Many laws change between states and cities. Well, you're right. And there are a lot of laws that you can technically violate without being aware of the niceties of a given jurisdiction. But the most part is just have a sense of right and wrong. And if you comply with that sense of right and wrong, you're probably not going to violate laws. And if you do accidentally violate a law while you're trying to stay on the right side of the right versus wrong, it'll work out. I think that's a good overall rule of thumb. But they say it all the time. Ignorance of the law is no defense. And hell, even though I practice law, there's plenty of laws. I don't know what they are. You, you end up knowing the area of the law that you specialize in. A lot of stuff I don't know. And now that I haven't been doing it for 10 years, I really don't know. Another important question from the PFTP and Posse. What's your favorite fish to grill? How do you prepare it? We do sushi-grade tuna, steaks, halibut, salmon, and a few others on the grill quite often. And it's always environmentally friendly, harvested properly and sustainable, or we won't eat it even though it costs a lot more. I don't like fish. I used to like fish. I I figure I've eaten enough fish in my life that I can just eat red meat for the rest of it, however long it may be. I like steak. I like hamburgers. I like hot dogs. For me, I'll eat chicken on a night when I feel like, you know, I I better, you know, take a break from the red meat tonight. But I went a long period of time in my life watching everything. You know what? I'm no thinner or heavier now than I was then. And I feel just as healthy. And I get a physical every year. That's not like I'm eating red meat every meal. And I'll typically get, when I make steak at home, something on the leaner side. And when we make hamburgers, we, we get 85%, 15% lean to fat. Now, hot dogs, who the hell knows what's in there, but they're good. Especially when you put them on a grill. I, I believe you can put anything on a grill and it would taste good. 
I'm not going to use any, you know, gross examples, but you could put anything on a grill and cook it and season it. Not anything. Pretty much anything. You could put it on a grill, cook it and season it, and it'd become quasi-edible. I'm thinking of some really gross stuff you could put on a grill now, and it's kind of making me sick. I'm not grilling tonight. PFTP and Posse with teams contacting undrafted free agents before the draft is over. How does their courtship impact teams making selections in the last couple of rounds? Does one team find out they will likely lose a prospect to another team or to keep a player from a rival team and draft him? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. When you start calling these guys up, here's the thing, though. If it's and I think part of it is just the overall etiquette and convention. If I represent a guy who is sliding down the board and I don't know if he's going to get drafted or not and the team that calls me up wants to negotiate a free agent contract in advance I don't know that I get off that phone and start calling up other people I know saying hey you better draft my client because I just was talking to this team that's thinking about signing part of it too is they going to believe you and my guess is some agents have tried that but I don't know that you'd believe them. You just make your picks. You line up your class of undrafted free agents. There's enough prospects out there with the only seven rounds in the draft that you can't worry about that. Somebody's going to get drafted. And if you feel strongly enough about that guy that's sliding, then just draft him. I just think too much is happening in a compressed time frame to sort it all out that way. And there are limits to how strategic you can be by way of leveraging interest that someone is showing in a client as an undrafted free agent, into getting someone else to actually draft him. Per case, Steez 13 is the new development in the Hills saga, an attempt from Hills camp to discredit Crystal Espinal. It seems the title of passed out is almost a shot at Espinal's parenting. How could this be an attempt to put doubt? Could this be an attempt to put doubt in the prosecution's mind? Why did this come out? You're talking about the weird KCTV report from last night or the night before. I think it was the night before that Hill with cameras installed in their residence, which if those cameras were on at the time the child broke his arm, maybe they'd know how it happened. But Hill saw Espinal passed out, and the boy left to his own devices, and Crystal Espinal ended up in the hospital, and not long after that they lost their parenting rights, and that just was a weird one for me. I think based on the letter, there's an effort to discredit Crystal Espinal. And there's a level of frustration that she created the secret audio that is being used against Tyreek Hill. And there's probably some suspicion that she leaked it. KC's 13, do you think you can get Randy Moss on PFT for the Derby? Not that Randy Moss. He nailed the exacta last year. Well, you know what? Randy Moss is going to be on with us tomorrow. Big Cat's on tomorrow, and Randy Moss is on tomorrow. Randy Moss, the horse racing and football reporter. Impact 99, or at, let me get it right, at the Impact 99, who's the most likely odd man out for a new contract slash extension in Dallas? Dak, Zeke, or Amari? Could they move slash move on from either? I I think they're going to try to keep them all. And with Dak, I'm fascinated by the possibility that Dak wants too much money, and the Cowboys say, instead of hey, we'll finish out this year of your contract and next year we'll use the franchise tag. Maybe the Cowboys just say, go ahead and hit the market and see what's out there. We think our offer's competitive. We think you'll stay. Also, keep this in mind. It's entirely possible that there'll be a new coach in Dallas next year. Maybe the new coach won't want Dak Prescott. Maybe the new coach will want to get his own quarterback. I, I, that's just something to keep an eye on. I don't know anything. I never know anything. I'm just saying keep an eye on that possibility. Dustin Miller asks, what's one thing you wish the NFL would update, technologically speaking? I wish they would do more with VR, take the front row seat out of the 50-yard line, put a VR camera there, and let us stream the game in VR. You could charge $10 per person for access and make bank. The, the virtual reality stuff, I felt like it was really starting to come on. What, what's happened with it? Remember the 3D technology was going to be a big deal? They televised a game in 3D. They didn't televise it. It was in a movie theater. And there was a vision there. I think it was one of Art Modell's sons that was involved in the broadcasting on a 3D basis of NFL games. And the thinking was that they could broadcast these games 
primetime game in a theater. You go and you pay your 10 bucks to watch it at the theater. You pay, you know, ridiculously high prices for popcorn and beer and whatnot. And it becomes a communal event. And you go see this awesome display in 3D. The 3D technology kind of fizzled out, though. And I remember going to see U2 3D, concert film from U2. This was a good 10, 12 years ago. And it was awesome. My son and I went to see it, and we loved it. But that technology just never picked up. Now, I know they still do 3D in the movie theaters, but not to the same extent that we thought it was going to be. Like, there'll be one movie out of every, I don't know, how many, that they put in the 3D theater. But it just never took off, especially with sports. Virtual reality, it hasn't really taken off. And one of the years at the Super Bowl, I think it was three years ago, Ronnie Lott was doing something with one of the virtual reality companies, and you take your phone and you put it in those glasses, and like you were sitting courtside at a basketball game, and you could turn and watch what's going on at one end, and then you look at the other end, and the kid's out there mopping up the sweat, and you just people watch, look around, hey, what's going on up there, and boxing match, same thing. So that would be great, and there was talk about doing it. I think they were talking about doing it like... For people in other countries who would never have a chance to go to a game. See, I think they don't want to do anything. If you make the experience of not going as close to being there as possible, then nobody's going to go. I think that's part of the concern. It's Tariq. How do you feel about the Madden games today compared to its early years? Well, I mean, the early years, it was it was kind of kitschy. It was fun. It was the ambulance comes out on the field and wipes everybody out. But it, it didn't play well. I like the fact that you can play online. It's always harder to play somebody else than it is to play against, quote-unquote, the computer. I, I went several years just not liking the Madden product, especially because I was frustrated that they bought the exclusive license with the NFL and they killed the 2K franchise because I thought the 2K, 2K game was superior, uh, superior to Madden. But there was a, it just, I, I, and I'd still buy it every year. I had this weird soft spot for it. It's just the routine, the tradition. I did. It's like, I don't want to buy it. I don't want to buy it. Oh shit. I'll go ahead and buy it. But starting like four or five years ago, because I used to play the hockey game all the time. I loved the hockey game. I didn't like Madden. And then I discovered the FIFA game and I loved the FIFA game and I hated Madden. And then one of the years, the FIFA game just wasn't very good. It was too hard. It's like, I'll just try Madden. It's like, you know what? I kind of like this. And I discovered the whole ultimate team where you build your own team and you've got modern day players and historical players and you gradually make your team better and better and better. And that's kind of where I am now. My team is right on the brink of a 94. And what will happen is I'll get it up to around a 99 just in time for the new Madden to come out. And you get knocked down to 59 and you have to build it up all over again. And I, I'm too cheap to buy stuff. I guess if you could keep your old team and just perpetually make your team better and better. Now, the problem is at some point you would have 99s across the board. But I refuse to spend any money on it because it's always something that that resets to zero when the new game comes out. And that new game's coming out late July, early August. And I always hate that feeling. I, I don't want to part ways with the Madden that I've been working on for the last year. I almost wish they did a new Madden game every two years, but there's money to be made by getting everyone who plays Madden to plunk down 50 or 60 bucks on the new model of the game. Tyler Fornis asks a question that I've already answered, but it just shows that people are interested in this. The new development in the Tyreek Hill case is very strange. How is it being viewed from a legal perspective? And I'm glad your instincts are that this seems strange. It's just, it is strange. I think it is strange. I think it's a letter that was ill-advised. The contents of the letter, very, very strange. And, and it, see, it was written, I think, for the media. That's why I believe it was, it was leaked. I don't know why you use that letter as your vehicle for communicating a lot of factual information. If they want factual information, we'll come meet with you. Because I don't want to start having multiple versions of the facts out there. And I don't want, as the lawyer, to be characterizing the facts until there is a record of evidence to characterize. I mean, think of it. If you deliver your closing argument before your client has testified, then 
if your client's testimony doesn't mesh with the closing argument, you're screwed. Whereas if you wait until your client testifies along with everyone else and you deliver a closing argument, you can be much more compelling and persuasive. You don't have to worry about your interpretation of the facts meshing with the facts as they ultimately are harvested and produced and introduced. So I, I just, there's something about this that bothers me and I'm glad that others out there who don't have the legal experience are, st are just kind of, feel, there's something weird about this and there is something weird about it. Dominate FF, how much of a regression should we expect from Patrick Mahomes with no Kareem Hunt or presumably Tyreek Hill? Look, I, I think that there's a potential for regression this year, regardless of whether those guys are on the team or not, because I think that defensive coordinators are going to spend the entire offseason obsessing over ways to stop Patrick Mahomes. Study the film, study the film, study the film. What can we do to stop Patrick Mahomes? How do you get to Patrick Mahomes? How do you knock Patrick Mahomes off his spot? How do you keep him from throwing the ball left-handed? How do you keep him from extending the play? How do you keep him from that sidearm missile, the piss missile, as Sims would call it, whizzing by your head? How do you defend again? You know, and, and it's a challenge, but I think there will be some regression. I think there'll be a ceiling that he's going to have to bust through in 2019. At Nick Estrom, in your mind, who's on the hot seat if this season doesn't go as planned for the Vikings? If multiple, can you rank them? Well, if Kirk Cousins stinks again, then I think the people responsible for bringing Kirk Cousins to town are going to have some tough questions to answer. Mike Zimmer ended up getting a one-year extension, or they picked up the option. So he was in the last year of his contract. The Vikings picked up the option, so he's got two years left. So he's not a lame duck this year. But... I think that if this season ends up being a 4-12 and disaster, you could have some major changes in Minnesota. Now, I don't think it will be. I think they'll be closer to 12-4 and than 4-12. and But if it is a disaster, I, I think that we may be at a point where ownership would decide to make some changes. Another one from Nick Estrom. Are there any moves you're hoping for the Vikings to make before the start of the season? I mean, it feels like they're ready to move on from Kyle Rudolph. I like Kyle Rudolph. I respect Kyle Rudolph. But when you draft Irv Smith, you're sending the message. And if they could trade him, maybe for an offensive lineman, all else fails a draft pick next year. You know, if you can find an offensive lineman who fits the Gary Kubiak system, even though Kevin Stefanski is the offensive coordinator, there's a heavy Gary Kubiak influence on this offense by necessity. But if you could do that and unload... 7.275 million in cap space for a team that needs the cap space I'd say that makes sense in Quaid Chowdhury is the Tyreek Hill situation the fastest the Madden curse has struck a player slash team hashtag no one is immune yeah I look I this thing this thing was out there before Patrick Mahomes signed up for Madden 4ACODMT1. Mike, I made a Twitter specifically to say I would be interested in the PFTPM meetup. I live within driving distance of Pittsburgh, which you keep mentioning as a potential spot. Could you possibly make a poll to determine attendance? Love the podcast. Here's the thing. I could do a poll, and it's easy to say yes to the poll. It's harder to say yes. I'll go ahead and, and show up on the on the night in question. Somebody said something yesterday that kind of caught my, my ear. The idea that we could do it with some sort of a, of a revenue component and all the proceeds, not the profits, all the proceeds, all the money that comes through the door would end up going to some sort of a charity. I kind of like that, but I'm continuing to think about it. Sergio D., are the Barstool Boys visiting you this summer? They only stopped by when they were passing through on their grit tour. I haven't heard anything about their grit tour this year. I don't know. They're always welcome, but it, depending upon where that van goes and what interstate they're going to be on they may or may not be in in close driving distance all right i gotta wrap this up looking for a few more buffalo guy 83 what do you have most in common with michael scott man that's a hell of a question because my theory is and i stole this from somebody i didn't think of it but basically the beauty of michael scott is everyone knows a michael scott and if you don't know a Michael Scott, you're the Michael Scott. So, 
there's an innocence and a naivete about Michael Scott that I find appealing. I used to have more of that. I think time, experience, age, you become less naive. I remember when I was like 20, 21, 22 years old, I was very gullible. And I was gullible because it was just too damn hard trying to figure out who was lying to you. I didn't have enough experience. I didn't have the context. I hadn't been lied to enough times. I hadn't dealt with enough liars to develop the skill of discerning who's lying. Life was easier just saying, I don't give a shit. You're lying to me. I don't care. I don't care. Are we still drinking beer later? Your priorities are very different. I always say that like 18 to 21 is the worst time to be in college. Those were miserable years for me. I did what I had to do. I hated it. I wanted to work out, hang out, and chase girls, 18 to 21. Listen to music. Drink beer. Be young. I had a keen appreciation when I was young that this shit ain't lasting forever. And I'm going to enjoy it. And I did. To the detriment of my ultimate college performance. Although I still did all right. I could have done a hell of a lot better if I'd have been more mature. I just don't know that thrusting kids into an ultra competitive environment at age 19, 18, 20, 21, whatever. I just, I don't know. Is that good for them long term? I, I just like the idea of letting kids at age just be, why are we trying to get them to change their nature, to suppress their nature? Now, I, I guess some of the kids are fine and they that, that's how they're comfortable. And I sure as hell dealt with plenty of kids when I was in college that seemed perfectly fine, never going out, perfectly fine, studying every night, taking their their college far more seriously than I did. Now, when I got to law school, I took it far more seriously. That was when I told myself this is a job and we're going to do this a certain way and it's part of the overall maturation process and I did a hell, I got a hell of a lot better results when I took it more seriously. But, but anyway, back in those days, I was, I was just so gullible because I just didn't care. I was, I was too young and dumb to, to figure out when someone was lying to me and I just didn't care. It's like, you want to lie to me? I don't care. As long as you don't punch me in the face. Like that, that was your, your big concern getting punched in the face. Or for me, like, I was very active. I know you wouldn't think that now. I was very active. I was so worried about tearing an ACL. To me, that was like the ultimate fear. Because you get put on the shelf. On top of getting put on the shelf, your activity consists of rehabbing the torn ACL. So, anyway. uh, I'm really not answering the question. What do I have most in common with Michael Scott? Coffee breath. I'll go with coffee breath. All right, let's see what else we have. You know, we should probably end it. Oh, one more from, from Tyler Esquire, Tyler Fornes. Change your name back to the real Forno. You're messing with me, Tyler. Do you ever cook breakfast on the grill? Last year, my buddy Bobby V was in town. And he, he visits a couple times a year. He's a great guy. Field producer with NBC Sports. He does a lot with NBC News now, too. Chicago guy. Loves life. He'll visit from time to time. And we had like a PFT Live mini summit here. Sims didn't show up though, but Matt Casey was here, and uh, I think I think Stats was here too. I think Stats was still here. But anyway, bacon, sausage on the grill, um, eggs cooked separately, but all thrown in together, and it was so damn. It's you know every once in a while I will be eating something that is so good that your the thing in your body that tells you you're full gets overridden and your body's just like screw it just keep eating man it's too good you're not full nope keep going and that was one of those days where it's like i could just keep going i will never get full so uh i'm getting hungry thinking about it it's dinner time it's five o'clock eastern i haven't eaten since lunchtime i'm gonna go i maybe i'm gonna go cook some breakfast on the grill right now all right everybody enjoy the day tomorrow big cat on pft live Mitch Trubisky, I, I don't know whether that's... I think that's going to get wedged into PFTPM, I think. So so it looks like we're going to go five for five this week. Looks like we got Mitch Trubisky tomorrow. So uh, look out for that. And uh, 
Check us out around the clock at profootballtalk.com. Even when things have slowed down, there's still plenty going on. So uh, we'll be with you all evening into tomorrow, and we'll do this again. And uh, have a great Thursday night. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.